Welcome to Illumination by Modern Campus. Through this series, we speak to higher education thought leaders about the trends, ideas, and opportunities that are shaping the future of this industry and pick their brains for best practices and advice that leaders can apply to their own institutions. On today's episode, Evolution Editor-in-Chief and Illumination host Amrit Alawalia is joined by Maria Anguiano, the Executive Vice President of Learning Enterprise at Arizona State University. Amr and Maria discuss why more and more institutions are shifting their focus to a lifelong learning model and how technologies like augmented and virtual reality could be the next step in accessible learning. Well, Maria, thank you so much for joining me on the Illumination podcast. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. So obviously, I mean, Arizona State has set something of the standard for what innovation in the higher ed space looks like. Um, you know, the last 10 years of, of watching ASU has kind of set um, set a direction for the rest of the industry in terms of like, where's the industry going? How can institutions recalibrate? Just, you know, before we're going to obviously talk about lifelong learning. We're going to talk about some of the work that you guys are doing, your, your perceptions. But I just want to start off with, like, how much fun is it working in such an innovation-oriented institution? You know, I, I definitely feel like I found my place, you know, in yeah. terms of it's it's a wonderful mix of both feeling very startupy and innovative, but also having the broad uh, mission of making public education as high as high quality and as accessible as possible. And I just think it's it's hard to get that in a pure startup. And so it's really nice to have that combination. Absolutely. Yeah. There's, I mean, brand and mission and focus aligned with culture is it's a heck of a recipe. And, you know, obviously a lot of the work that, that you and the team have been doing over the last five years is, is starting to build out um, a really interesting model for what lifelong education looks like. Um, lifelong education has become more and more of a, a I'm not going to call it a trend in the higher ed space. I mean, the reason evolution has three L's is for lifelong learning. So I'm not going to call it a flash and pan. I'm not going to call it a trend, but why are so many higher ed institutions starting to turn their focus toward a lifelong model for education? Like, why is this a part of the consciousness of our industry now? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, you know, it has to do with just really looking um, at where our society is going, right? I think public education has evolved over a long period of time, Um and it continues to evolve to serve the public and to serve our learners as best as we can. And so as we see the trends in society and the economy going, things are evolving really quickly, right? And so the skills that you had two years ago already are outdated and people need to keep upskilling and learning. Um, and folks are trying to move ahead and move economically, um, economic mobility. And for that means literally learning new skills every day. And so we just want to make that easy for folks. And we want to make sure folks have, um, at least for us at ASU, that it doesn't feel like you're out there by yourself trying to figure out how do I get these skills, but that you have a community and an institution that you can trust to go to, to say, hey, I want to learn this. What's my next step? And that we can serve you um, for your whole life. Absolutely. And, you know, as lifelong learning becomes more of a norm, how do you expect the role of the degree itself to start to evolve? Yeah. Well, you know, for us, I think the degree is a symbol of an accumulation of skills 
um, you know, that you've accumulated over that period of time. And so to me, it's, and it's, you know, right now, I would say it's the, the standard. Um, but I think as we get more and more digital, and as we try to really get to the core of what is a degree, we'll start yeah. to really pull out, well, what does this actually mean, right? What are the skills that you're accumulating over, over the time you're in college? And I think that'll put more pressure on educational institutions to actually focus on quality. Because right now we have a really, uh, I think, insufficient way of categorizing quality, which is like, oh, yeah. great, if your institution rejects everyone, that's high quality. It says nothing about the actual quality of your education, right? Yeah. And so to the extent that we can actually be focused on what skills are you accumulating during this time and have you shown progression in those skills attainment and knowledge attainment, that's what quality education is going to mean. I, I still can't wrap my head around the rejection rate as being a, an indicator of quality. Like I understand it in terms of, you know, how like I guess the call it the elitism of the institution, but it, but in terms of how selective the institution is, but there's so there are country clubs and higher ed institutions that are rewarded for keeping people out. It, it's an odd model. I mean, and that it, you've raised an interesting point though, which is that over the course of a call it a century or more, higher ed institutions have been had their quality and their reputation gauged by how difficult it is to access them. How do we start to create I guess a cultural shift in the way that we think about post-secondary education that starts to put a, a genuine focus and priority like primacy on access as opposed to exclusivity. Yeah, well, that's, as you know, our, our charter at ASU is to measure ourselves by who we include mm -hmm. and how they succeed, right? So in many ways, we're really driving the charge to say, hey, let's focus on the quality of the education, not who you're rejecting. Um, and yeah. so I think what that's going to mean is several things. You know, one, like I said, is really the objective measurement of skill and knowledge attainment um, in a way that can be um, validated. And I think employers are going to have a, a big role to play in this. We partner with lots of employers across the country and across the globe because when they start saying, okay, we're really looking for XYZ skill set. And we can objectively show as educational institutions that our students have them. They're going to mm -hmm. start saying, well, these are the students that have these skills. So we're going to start hiring them. Right. And then the where you went to school, as long as you can show your your skills and knowledge attainment, I think will become hopefully less and less relevant. And the actual quality um, in your level of skills will actually be, I think, measured more objectively than just, oh, well, I went to this school, so I must be smart and I must have these yeah. skills. Well, because you're right, like what you're talking about is, is, are you signaling some kind of competence as opposed to are you actually communicating it? Or do you have some kind of verification behind that, that signal that you're actually competent or, or you have mastery in a certain area? Exactly. Let me ask you something on the topic of accessibility, because, you, you know, your professional background is in, uh, you know, budgeting, financial management of public post-secondary institutions. It, it's, a, it's a fascinating space because when you talk about sort of access uh, and especially some aspects of non-credit education, we're talking about programming that isn't financial aid eligible in, in many cases. We're talking about programming that requires accessibility because it's it's really that, that style of programming that creates social mobility for folks that can't necessarily afford um, 
more traditional uh, education pathways. One of the topics that keeps coming up, when we, especially when we're talking to folks in continuing ed, is this balancing act between a division that's charged with supporting revenue generation or at least maintaining revenue neutrality on the one hand, and on the other hand, creating access for people who can't necessarily afford the, the ticket price for uh, non-financial aid eligible programming. Just out of curiosity, like uh, with, with your financial background, I'm fascinated by how you think about this conundrum. Like how, how do you approach this question of, of creating financial access for folks who can't necessarily afford it while at the same time remaining viable? Yeah, it, well, I would say that's the question, not just for the lifelong learning or continuing learning, but for the institution at its core, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of Fair. financial viability, <laughs> that's what actually drove me, I think, to become an innovator in, in higher education. I'll tell you a quick story and then answer Please your do. question, yeah. um, which is when I was uh, a CFO of a R1 university, I was tasked to calculate, well, what would it take to expand access to, let's say, 5,000 more students? And so in order to do kind of a quick and dirty analysis, we used all the ratios of like, what's our current cost per student um, in terms of the infrastructure, faculty student ratios, all the things, multiplied that out, and it was going to be like $3 billion. And that, in order to create, the, and that's when I, that was the moment I realized there is no way we're going to get to where we need to go as a society in terms of access by keeping the current uh, operating models, right? And so mm. that was that was kind of like the day I switched to say, I need to figure out new accessible ways to provide higher education. Um, and so just like, let's say maybe your traditional four-year degrees might have scholarship programs, uh, financial aid availability. And there's a lot of that actually untapped resources in the continuing ed space, and especially for upskilling and workforce development. Um, and it just hasn't really been systematically embedded into um, the efforts, I think. Right. So we are looking at it as part of the core offering, just like any other degree program would say, okay, well, what are my you know, federal financial aid scholarship opportunities, putting together packages for people? I think it's the same. I think we have to do it that way for any sort of um, lifelong learning that doesn't have the, the easy federal financial aid. I think there's lots of other resources for it, including... Um, including employer partnerships. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, you know, what blows me away is that, I mean, effectively what you're talking about is just approaching it with the same conscious, you know, rigor that you would any core offering. Because it, it getting away from this question of, you know, how, how right, is, if it's part of the strategy of the institution, then there would be an effort to find ways to making it affordable as opposed to saying, well, that seems like a student problem and, and really just kind of leaving it at that. Um, yeah. So you guys right. are, you're looking at employers, you're looking at grants, you're looking at the different, the different pathways. Exactly. And I think that has to do with the fact that learning enterprise, which is the organization I run is a core aspect of ASU, right? Unlike mm-hmm. most institutions that have perhaps some non-degree things that are usually considered extension or continuing ed, ASU's basically reorganized ourselves to have three enterprises that all sit at the core and work with the schools and colleges. And so it's almost like a triangle, academic enterprise with our degree programs, knowledge enterprise with all our research and learning enterprise for 
learning at every stage in life, including a bunch of K-12, which most institutions don't do. Um, And we have it as a core aspect, right? Which means it's not a sideline. It's not a separate thing. It's a core part of the university. And so that allows us to have that same mentality than if, than you wouldn't if it was not a core you know, it's, it's interesting, like we're, you know, we're talking about this. Um, and uh, for those of you who are familiar with the evolution, you'll know that we've uh, published a state of continuing education report for the last three years. And this year, we developed it in partnership with UPSIA. It came out earlier this month, um, or I guess when you're listening to this earlier last month. Um, and one of the things that came out of it, which is consistent to what we saw last year, is there's significant support from senior leadership for scale and growth and continuing and professional online education. Senior executives want to see it, but at the same time, the barriers to innovation, the barriers to scale tend to fall primarily to administrative burdens. So basically, you know, folks in the continuing ed space are saying, we are being told by senior leadership, we have support to scale, to grow, to transform. But the things that stand in our way tend to also stem from senior administration in terms of having a a lack of resources, a lack of staffing, a lack of technology that's actually going to facilitate the kind of transformations we want to see. When you guys made the shift from the sort of more traditional institutional model that ASU had to the sort of three enterprise model there is today, how does that administrative burden barrier, uh, how has that, how has the impact of administrative burden shifted in terms of the capacity to innovate? Yeah. Um, Well, that's interesting that you would phrase it that way because I don't see it that way at all, actually. (laughs) Um, in the sense that, you know, ASU is a, we consider ourselves a public enterprise, right? Not an agency, which means most of our revenues really derive by our own means. Um, anyway, again, our $3 billion enterprise, whether it's research or students or a continuing ed portfolio is all derived on us recruiting or somehow, um, you know, going out and getting that research money. And so it's yeah. the same thing for the learning enterprise. Um, and so we've already had this culture of it's, you know, I don't wait around to see if, if I'm going to get money from the administration, right? Yeah. My job is to figure out how to fundraise, how to develop sustainable programs and how to take them from seed. It's in many ways, it is very much like a startup, how you take a startup from seed stage to scale, right? Mm-hmm. And you go out and you get the resources you need. So I think we just need to learn to be a little bit more entrepreneurial in how we're thinking about um, scale and growth makes a ton of sense and, and it, you know there's a level of empowerment as well that comes from that sort of that uh, mandate a little bit um I, as you build out sort of this education ecosystem that's designed to support lifelong learning what are some of the biggest differences between the model that you and your team are developing and what you've seen as being the more traditional operating model of the average r1 institution yeah well, you know, one of the things, and I also sit on the board of regents for the University of California. So I spend a lot of time looking at <laughs> other R1s um, in addition to ASU. Sure. <laughs> um, and again, one of the things that I think is a really differentiator for ASU is that since learning enterprise is part of the core, that means we work with directly with schools and colleges and deans um, and, some, and very much our same faculty, right? And so that allows us to be actually be able to use assets that we're creating across a series of modalities. So if we're creating 
just to give you an example, uh, a new school or really a new campus out in Mesa, Arizona, that's focused on multimedia and extended reality. And we're, you know, we have new majors that we're creating on literally extended reality and like the role of new media. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a ton of applicability on all those things for folks that are in media, want to upskill, perhaps need a certificate, want to understand this. And so we're really working collaboratively with us as we're developing these kind of academic credentials, how we also take these same assets and make them more accessible to all learners, right? So whether it's an executive ed or continuing ed, or maybe a short form certificates, et cetera. So I think we, I think it's the creativity of figuring out how do you use one asset in many different ways, right? Versus trying to recreate something or saying, well, that's for this thing. I can't use it for this other thing. And then you're not really leveraging um, all the resources you have. So that's one of our approaches to uh, that I think has been successful is, is really looking how we can, I would say, leverage all the assets that we currently have. And, and really our remit is how do we make those more accessible? And it could be through simple things. Um, I'll give you another quick example is you know, we have an ambassador that um, is one of our professors of practice and we were talking and he was interested in doing a, a series of, of chats on how to be an ambassador for our law school students. And I was like, well, that's fantastic. That's a really small population. What yeah. if we recorded you and created a webinar series on this and then made it accessible to all people that wanted to see this? All of a sudden we have thousands of people experiencing the same education that a small group in a like old format, small group of law school students would have gone, right? And so it's thinking about how do we take, again, this current asset that we have and figuring out how to scale it to a way more learners that historically would have had access to it. Does that make That's sense? That's such a cool, yeah, absolutely. Because you're, you're thinking very actively about, about scale. You're thinking very actively about access. It's not something that happens later it's designed into the DNA of, of what you're building almost from, from the composition stage. Exactly. So that, you know, what's fascinating about this is that I think if you were to look at the strategic plan of almost any post-secondary institution of almost any description, you'd find lifelong learning some, somewhere in there. But this, this movement to then actually activate that, to start finding ways to deliver it, 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 it's kind of fascinating. The, the other part that kind of blows me away is as you were talking about sort of the, the concept of, of extended reality and, um, you know, when, when we were at ASU GSV, um, I want to say at the beginning of March, April, April? what yeah. times the flat circle. I don't know. <laughs> well, I don't know what day it is anymore. Um, one of the things that blew me away was at the ASU booth, there was an example of some of the work that's happening in the AR VR space um, and how it's being brought into uh, learning exercises at ASU. How do you see some of that work starting to influence the development of, you know, corporate training, um, corporate training offerings of, you know, extended and continuing education offerings? Like we know that this space tends to be the skunk works for new things that get tested out and uh, developed and, and grown. It, it tends to start in CE and then build out elsewhere. Uh, online learning and certificates being classic examples. Do you see AR, VR as being kind of the next version of that? Uh, you know, I do. But again, part of ACU is like we're actually developing in all our enterprises all at once, right? So not mm-hmm. only are we doing the research around it, but in fact, we have a biology course. Um, 
you know, that we've embedded into our biology majors, right? And then we're also using that to say, well, how could we use it in continuing ed? So we like to take that core asset and figure out how we use it in all aspects of what we're doing. Um, but I, we see a lot of applicability. I think we're still at very nascent stages there, right? But there's so much education that um, needs simulation, right? And so to the extent that you're practicing things literally in VR or extended reality, um, I think that there's just, I just, I think it's too nascent for me to say, here's all the applicabilities, but we're looking Fair. into it very carefully to say, well, we know we, we can use it in a lot of different spaces and it's just a matter of figuring it out. But I think we're too early, at least in our end to say we have put any like, you know, strategic thoughts into it. That's fair. Um, so as you start looking at building out this sort of lifelong learning ecosystem, you see more in leaders across the post-secondary space trying to figure out what their own version of that's going to look like. What advice do you have to share uh, for other leaders trying to figure out whether it's, you know, from a policy perspective, whether it's from a resourcing perspective, like how can other leaders start to adopt this mentality that you and your team have around sort of the, the significance and importance of scale and access in, in a lifelong learning enterprise? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think I would advise folks um, that to have a, you know, kind of an abundance mindset and know that the resources are out there for them. I think sometimes the limits that I hear are people saying, well, that's, we don't have money for that, or like, that's not our role. And so just to be more expansive of how you think about the role of the university is to serve at least public, is to serve the public, right? And that is a huge mission. And there's a lot of people that want to support you in doing that if you present them a good vision. Mm -hmm. um, and so to not start with a mindset of, well, we don't have the resources, but to say, how would we get them? Uh, what, like how, who do we partner with to make this happen? And so to have, um, to have the goal whether you know how to get to it or not. Because I think once you set the goal, you start thinking of ways to achieve the goal. If you don't set the goal, you're never going to achieve it. Absolutely. Well, Maria, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation um, and look forward to, to hearing the podcast. <laughs> me too. This episode is brought to you by Modern Campus in partnership with The Evolution. Modern Campus empowers higher ed institutions to thrive when radical change is required to deal with lower student enrollments and revenue, rising costs, crushing student debt, and even school closures. Powered by the industry's only student-first modern learner engagement platform, Modern Campus supports every corner of the modern institution, from continuing and workforce education, to student affairs, to the registrar's office, to marketing and IT. To find out more on how you can transform your institution to meet the needs of the modern learner, visit moderncampus.com. That's moderncampus.com.